You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. So ladies, that is a gathering specifically for you. It'll be our third year um, to do that here. I encourage you. Uh, to go online, go on the app and sign up, register for the IF gathering, uh, regardless of age, regardless of whether you're married or single, um, in Christ and in the fellowship of Christ, the church, all those, uh, those barriers are obliterated. We become one people. So I encourage you to do that. Um, also want to remind you to be here tonight, if possible, for our night of worship and prayer again between five uh, and six uh, as we pray specifically for Easter coming up in two weeks. Last thing I would say before we jump in this morning um, to Luke chapter four is that you've got just a few more days to sign up for the Seder meal that we are doing together with Mars Hill Community Church. It'll be here um, next Thursday, uh, Monday, Thursday before Good Friday. Got just a few days to sign up and be a part uh, of that really unique experience of the Seder meal. So again, go online. Uh, go on to the app. You can find um, that there and sign up for that. What I want to do is read straight through the passage that we're going to be um, looking at and listening to God's voice from this morning in chapter Luke. It's a, it is a, a series in Jesus' life, an encounter, a time in Jesus' life that many of you will be familiar with. So my prayer for us this morning is really what my prayer uh, and, and plea to God has been for my own life throughout the week as I was preparing to preach that he would uh, speak to me um, specifically through a passage that I already knew well. And he's been faithful to do that. So uh, I pray expectantly that he'll be faithful to do that uh, for us together this morning. Let's look at Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four, beginning in verse one. I have to say, at the expense of sounding 156 years old, it makes my heart sing to hear Bible pages turning in the church. There is something unique about the physical Bible itself. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, He was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we sit before you this morning simply as a group of beggars. God, as those who, apart from Christ and your amazing grace, have nothing to bring you, nothing to offer you, nothing on which to stand and make our pleas before you. But God, we know that in and through Christ, we've been chosen by you. We've been redeemed by you. We've been washed by you. We've been declared righteous, God, when none of us are as of yet. God, we lift up to you this morning as we gather here to worship issues of our community, our state, and our nation. God, specifically, we put before you our brothers and sisters in Mississippi. God, who've experienced such devastation, tragedy, and loss through the powerful natural disaster that tornadoes brought their way this week. God, comfort them. Lord, empower your church in their communities with a special measure of your spirit to do the ministry that you've called them to do at this time. God, we pray for our world, which is filled uh, with just a great degree of instability and violence. And Father, we remind ourselves in your presence that you are the God of your world. You are the God of human history. Meet now with us here through your word and your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take just a minute and, and walk through the temptations, the unique temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. I will put before you this thought right now. I, I believe it is common for us to think that the temptations that Jesus faced here in the wilderness were somehow less than real. Somehow, maybe less than uh, uh, powerful as the kinds of temptations that we face today. We do this, I think, because we know that Christ himself was not a sinner. And therefore, uh, the devil had no inner tendency toward sin, toward rebellion or disobedience with which to, to leverage in Jesus' life. Nothing that he could exploit internally. But I want to remind you, as this is a New Testament picture of the temptation in Genesis that Adam and Eve also did not have an inner disposition or tendency towards sin. They were created good and perfect in God's sight, sinless, and yet subjected to an external temptation that was very real, a temptation 
that actually led to their act of disobedience and rebellion, their decision to walk their own way instead of God's way. And so I don't want you to minimize what Jesus is facing here as you think about his temptation. He was really a man, really in a wilderness, really being tempted at an extreme level by the greatest tempter who's ever lived. Look again at chapter four, verses one and two. It says, Jesus, as Luke writes, was full of the Holy Spirit following his baptism, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is important for us to know that it was actually the, God the Father through the agency of the Spirit leading Jesus into this wilderness experience. See, you and I tend to think when we're stuck in wilderness experiences of our own, which may last 40 days or may last 40 years, we tend to think we must have somehow angered God. Or we must somehow not be doing something right that God would allow us to be here. But hear me say this morning, church, sometimes it is the very goodness of God and grace of God that not only allows you to enter into a wilderness experience, but leads you there in his tender sovereignty in your life to prepare you for a season that is going to come. This is what's happening with Jesus here, a season of testing trial and temptation before his public ministry commences. And Luke wants us to be absolutely clear here that God is in charge and not the devil. God is in charge and not the devil. The Spirit is with Jesus as he enters the wilderness. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus wasn't tempted three times, that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. This was an ongoing series of temptations. We're not given an insight into what all happened through those 40 days, but Luke tells us that for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. Not three times, but for 40 days. 40 days is significant. I won't go into it all here, um, but you can see 10, 12, maybe 15 times throughout the Word of God where 40 days has been consistently used by God, often just to signify a significant period of time, a significant period of time. He ate nothing. He ate nothing, which is interesting. Luke doesn't say he fasted, does he? He says he ate nothing. Luke is reaching back to the language of the Pentateuch in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 9, where Moses ate and drank nothing in preparation to receive the law from God, in preparation for a significant encounter with God the Father, where Moses would be uh, interceding and standing in between and on behalf of the people of God before God. Luke is very intentional in his language here, calling back to the wilderness time of Israel that we find recorded in the early books of the Old Testament. (laughs) Anybody else find intriguing the statement at the end of verse two? He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. You think? I mean, most of us, like, we miss a meal, and we're like, I don't know if I can make it. Right? Most of us have enough, how shall we say, stores in our body that we could make it 
weeks and weeks without any food. Why was Jesus hungry? He was hungry because he was really a man, really in the wilderness, really being tempted at this time. And Luke knows, Luke knows through the spiritual oversight and guidance of God that there are going to be those who are tempted to say, as I have heard them say, well, he was God. What's the big deal that he didn't eat for 40 days or 400 days or 4,000 days? But to make those statements, churches, to diminish his humanity and begin stepping into what the church has understood theologically throughout history to be heresy. To so focus on the divinity of Jesus as to minimize his humanity. And when you start minimizing his humanity, you have a savior very quickly that you cannot relate to and who cannot relate to you. Yes, he was hungry. This was a real temptation in a real place that was extremely unpleasant. Filled with blowing sands and outcroppings of, of limestone, desolate and barren. A place where Jesus had been taught from a very early age that evil spirits haunted, that it was uh, the dominion of darkness, a place where nothing grew and nothing seemed to live that was of any value. But part of what we're seeing here is the reality that all of Christ's life was to be this battle between light and darkness, between life and death, between heaven and hell. And it's in the wilderness where the Spirit had led Jesus that God the Father intimately meets him through the presence and power of his word. And sometimes it is absolutely in the wilderness that God intends to meet you through the Spirit in the presence and power of the Word. John McCain is a man now passed away a few years ago that many of you will be familiar with. Um, Naval Academy graduate fighter pilot in Vietnam who was shot down. His father was an admiral. McCain was imprisoned in Hanoi for years as a prisoner of war, beaten, brutally tortured. They felt like they could leverage him because of his father's status and McCain's resistance is well known. When he first became a prisoner there, uh, the North Vietnamese guards beat him every few hours for four or five days straight trying to get him to give up information. And behind McCain's resistance was not only his desire to live out faithfully the commitments he'd made, everybody has a breaking point, right? But was a sense of family honor and duty. They beat him until they rebroke his left arm, which had been broken upon his ejection. They cracked his ribs. They starved him down to 100 pounds a hundred pounds and broke several limbs that would require extensive surgery in time. Worst of all, McCain would come to say there was a lack of communication with other prisoners. He was kept uh, for a very long time in solitary confinement, unable to communicate with other prisoners. McCain talked about in his autobiography without 
uh, the ability to commune relationally with others, his prayer life increased all the more. He said he prayed for God's grace to continue to resist. He prayed for comfort when he felt like he could no longer bear the pain or the mental strain. He said, and I believed in, my dar- in the times of, of my darkest hours that God showed up to me in small and unique ways. One day he was moved for no reason into another solitary cell where etched on the wall was this phrase, I believe in God, the Father, the one almighty. McCain tells a story of getting to a point where he simply wanted to die. It was hard to figure out even how to accomplish that except to, to just give up. And he said, at that point on that random day, for some reason he can't explain, a young Vietnamese guard came in and loosened the rope that pinned his head between his legs hour after hour after hour, and McCain was able to stretch out and experience relief. It was just enough hope to get him through that day. At the end of the day, the guard came back in at shift change time and tied his head back between his legs. He said months later, he was allowed to step out for a couple of hours and get uh, some air, see the outside. It was Christmas Day. And he, he noticed that, that young Vietnamese guard that had come in to a cell and, and loosened his ropes so that he could uh, stretch out a bit months before. He noticed him over there and they made eye contact. He said he, he got nervous as the North Vietnamese guard began to walk to him. But he, he, he walked up over to him, bit down, and drew a cross in the dirt by McCain without saying a word and then scuffed it out of the dirt with his foot and walked off. You never know who or how God will make himself known to you in the wilderness, but make no mistake about it, church, whatever you walk through, God is present in there. And he will make himself known to you in the wilderness. He has been doing so throughout the history of his people. Now, look at verse 3 as we move into the specific named temptations of Jesus. Now, we don't know if these are happening throughout or if maybe the devil just gives it one last sort of college try at the end to try to um, get Jesus to crack. Verse 3, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, remember he'd been declared so by the voice of God himself from heaven in chapter 3, verse 22 at his baptism. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, the Greek tense here makes clear that the devil is not doubting that Jesus maybe is the son of God, even if he doesn't understand all the implications of that. He's not doubting what has happened so far. But what he's trying to do is sow a seed of doubt in Jesus' mind about what that means. Just as at times maybe you're not tempted to doubt whether or not you're a Christian, though some of you may be tempted to doubt that at times, but you may be tempted to doubt and you will be tempted to doubt throughout your journey about what it means for you to be a Christian. What is it really, do I really have to walk this way? Is it really the narrow road that leads to life or can my, can my way be a little bit wider? A little bit wider, he says, Hey, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Tell this stone to become bread. Now, this is not so much a temptation of hunger as it is a temptation uh, to dissatisfaction, to impatience, to self-will. 
to jump ahead of the work of the Father and to do what he so yearns to have done in his life at this moment of hunger himself. It's a temptation to doubt that his father loves him and cares for him when he's in the most unpleasant and lonely of circumstances. And make no mistake about it, the devil does come, his dominion and his minions into your life at these kinds of moments and tempts you, as he did Jesus, to doubt the father's love and care for you. Some of you are in that season right now. It has been so long since God answered your prayers. You've been crying out to him in certain ways for so long. And God isn't yet moving. And the great temptation in your life is the same one that Jesus is facing right now. It's to begin to handle things on your own and to doubt God's love and character and faithfulness to you in a season of life that is more unpleasant than pleasant, more lonely than joyful. J.C. Ryle says, the prince of this world would not give way to the prince of peace without a mighty struggle. He had overcome the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. Why should he not overcome the second Adam in the wilderness? The second Adam language that we've looked at from Romans chapter 5. This is exactly the temptation that the devil succeeded with in Genesis 3. Oh, you, you, you've got all this. There's been this great declaration from God that all of this is good and you are his and he's given you dominion and he's given you everything to eat, but seems like he's holding something back from you to me right? Wouldn't, wouldn't he want you to eat this as well? Wouldn't he want you to be satisfied by the fruit of this tree? Surely God would want that for you. He's sowing the seed of doubt about God's character. And it's in these little ways that you and I are led off the narrow path, right? We never step into sin or even step into sin in a way in which we get caught because it looks terrible to us and there's this big stop sign that says, no, this is sin and it's destructive for you. We step off because it looks good. We step off because in that moment, we're believing the lie that what we're stepping into and what we're doing is going to provide for us more joy and more satisfaction and more wholeness than the way of Christ will. C.S. Lewis in his famous book first published in 1942, The Screwtape Letters, which is this um, uh, allegorious um, conversation, allegorical conversation rather, uh, between two demons, an uncle, Screwtape, and his younger, newer demon nephew, uh, um, what's his name? Wormwood, Wormwood. And in there, Screwtape is teaching Wormwood about how to mess with us, how to get us and hold us in his dominion if he can, and if he, if he can, if we've already been grasped by the grace of God, how to make us miserable, ineffective, how to really get us on his side, though we don't even know it. And one of the things Screwtape says in here about temptation is this. Indeed, Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, 
without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's the path that many in our communities are running down right now. Why does it matter if I, I miss church regularly, you know, for my kids' sports? I, I don't need the Lord. My marriage is fine. I don't need the Lord. Look at, look at our house and our neighborhood. Our jobs are good. Just gently treading down the road to their own destruction. But Jesus sees this for what it is. And he answers the temptation with Scripture. From Deuteronomy 8, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And Jesus is reaching back and giving a faithful, trusting nod to God's provision supernaturally for his people in the wilderness. And this is just a reminder that because Jesus, because he overcomes here, he stands in the shadows of our lives, always present, always close, always reaching out his hands to you saying, if no one else understands, I understand. I've been there. I've experienced it myself. And if you'll hold on to me as I hold on to you, I will be there with you. Jesus has the power to grant us as the overcomer that we might be overcomers in him because of his unwillingness to give in. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 can say in verses 17 and 18, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, fully human in every way. That means his temptation was not only not less than ours, but with the devil right there, 40 days into not eating, probably far more significant than anything you or I will ever experience. And yet, he remained obedient. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't, um, he doesn't explain exactly how it was that Jesus suffered while he was tempted, but he makes clear that he did suffer in his temptation, and in doing so is able to empathize and be a help to us when we're tempted. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 of Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. But this is our temptation, isn't it? To say, you don't know, God. You don't know what it's like to be us. But God will say back, yes, I, I actually do. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The devil moves on. And in verse 5, it says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. And it's, it's all of their glory and their majesty. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Now, thinking person, or usually a child will come with a great question. Where exactly does the devil lead Jesus up to where he can see all the kingdoms of the world? 
And this question is not about doubting what happened, but it's about how you interpret what happened. It seems quite clear that this was likely a vision, a vision that the devil was enabled to give Jesus of all the kingdoms of the world, a snapshot of everything that existed at one time. As we see these kinds of visions in Isaiah, Ezekiel having a, a vision of Jerusalem seeing the city while he's still in captivity in Babylon. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 should cause us to pause for a minute. The devil says, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Does the devil speak truth here? Does the devil speak truth here? Well, we know Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6 says he controls the forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. John 12.31, he's described by Jesus as the prince of the power of this world. So in a sense, yes. But on the other side of that scale, we have Genesis 3, 1 Samuel 2, Matthew 11, Matthew 28, Romans 16, Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, Revelation 12, Revelation 20. And here we discover that anything the devil is engaged in, enjoys, anything that he does, he does under the sovereign power of God. He has no power to tempt Job, if you'll remember, but by the permission of God, no ability to tempt Christ beyond the point where Christ just sends him, sends him away, as one of the other gospel writers indicates at the end of this passage. I want to call to your memory, or maybe uh, put before you for the first time, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 specifically. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The psalmist knows the earth and everything that exists belongs ultimately to God. He is the author, the sustainer of all that is. And throughout Christ's ministry, Satan could only do what God allowed him to with the amount of leash that God chose to give him at any given moment. And so it has been throughout the history of the world, so it remains today. God will work out his good and perfect and beautiful purposes, even through the activity of the devil himself, even through the sinful actions of rulers and nations and human beings, even through your sinful actions on this side of your own redemption. Never be deceived, church, never be deceived about who's ultimately in control of this world, of the direction of human history and of your life and mine. Is there tension here? Yes, there is. There's tension here when we know, could God have stopped the tornado that hit Mississippi? Absolutely. Could he blown it away out into a field where nothing existed? Absolutely. There's a tension that we simply have to live with as we trust God and what the Bible says about his character. One commentator mentioned about this. Well, I'll save that for, uh, for a minute. I, I, I'm reminded of a story. Um, at my last church, I had an individual who started coming. 
who was a principal of a middle school and was convinced that there were demonic forces because of what he was seeing in the students that had inhabited that particular middle school and wanted to know if I'd come out on some evening and exercise it of the demons. Well, two things here. One, I've never known a middle school that I didn't feel like was inhabited by demons. So I don't know what the big to-do was. Second, I'll come out there, right, with a soda and some popcorn, and we'll see what's around there. Because you and I understand that we don't just battle flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and yet they have no power over us that God does not contain. Don't waste your time buying these silly books on breaking free of this bondage and that bondage and, and how to run this demon and that demon and Satan off. That is a waste of money. That's idiots trying to answer idiotic questions. And we can come up with enough of our own idiotic questions not to pay people to answer their own. Maybe we should just spend more time reading the Bible. Look at how Jesus replies again here. He says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, again, reaching back to Deuteronomy 6 at this time, remembering the idolatry of the unfaithful son of God in Israel, following the unfaithful son of God, Adam. And Jesus says, I will not bow my knee to you or to anyone else. This was the great strength of King David. Even though he commits adultery, even though uh, he views himself on line with the rest of the kings and sees himself as entitled to acting and behaving in the way that other kings do, and it leads down this, this road of tragic behavior and tragic consequences, and yet David is seen as the high point in terms of leadership in the history of God's people because what he would not do ever was bow his knee to another god. He would not submit to worship of anyone other than Yahweh. So Jesus replies again here with Scripture. And then the devil comes at him a third time. Verse 9 says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Uh, th this corner area of the temple where it's difficult to imagine how steep and how far the fall down is into the Kidron Valley. And he says, if you're the son of God, so he returns to that first to plant this doubt. Okay, I couldn't go at him here. I couldn't go at him here. Let's return back here and just see if I can cause him to question the character of God again. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And then the devil's like, I'm going to play his own game and I'm going to quote scripture to him which should make us aware that the devil knows the Bible too. And the devil knows how to twist the Bible. And the devil knows how to twist your thinking about the Bible. He quotes a passage from Psalm 91. He says, hey, uh, his angels are going to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands. They're not going to allow you to strike your foot against a stone. In a sense, the devil is saying, Jesus, if you're so serious about trusting God and living for him, why don't you demonstrate your faith in this way? Why don't you show off a bit? Right? Let me see 
Maybe let you see how serious your trust is in God. Jesus says, oh no, in verse 12, quoting Deuteronomy 6 again. He says, it is said, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. Um, David Garland was my uh, academic advisor uh, through my Master of Divinity degree in seminary. And Garland, in his commentary on Luke here, says that to test God basically means that one fails to acknowledge his power or take seriously his will to save. To test God is to impugn God's power and faithfulness to fulfill the covenant promises. God is not a God who dances for us. God is not a God to whom we say, if you are who you say you are, then you will do this for me. If you don't do this, God, then I will not do this. God doesn't dance for us. He doesn't have to. Just like Spurgeon said, the Bible doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let loose. And the truth of God defends itself quite ably, like a lion let out of its cage. God doesn't need to be defended. And he will not be put on the spot as if he's on trial by modern human beings who in their pseudo-intellectualism want him to dance for them or to demonstrate that he's real to them. Testing God, attempting to test God is dangerous water. And the quote that Jesus gives here from Deuteronomy 6, 16 is in the context of the people of God at Massa who'd rebelled and they're questioning Moses' leadership and they in a sense demand that God shows up for them, that God show himself to them. Now why does, why does Jesus respond this way? Because the scripture that the devil quotes is, is true and accurate. It's true and accurate. Why is Jesus so opposed to this? Why doesn't he want to demonstrate to the devil exactly who he is and exactly the kind of protection he has? I probably would have already turned him into a scorpion at this time in my fallen humanity if I had had the power and was 40 days into not eating, right? I mean, they had to coin a term for the way that we behave if we miss a meal or two, hangry. Hangry, which I think actually has a definition in the dictionary now, we're so pathetic. Jesus, 40 days in still putting up with this foolishness. Alistair Begg has a funny way of responding to this. He says, uh, Jesus responds the way he did because he'd had no word from his father directing him to do a swan dive from the edge of Herod's royal portico. So the very important here, you and I should never, never confuse faith in God and obedience to him with putting God to the test by doing ridiculous things, stupid things, that violate the natural laws that God has created, and then asking God to bless us and protect us as we do. Things like jumping into a romantic relationship that God's word would not bless, much less a marriage. Asking for God to, to grant us health while violating all of the laws of health that God has established. There's no use in eating pizza and asking God to bless it to the nourishment of your body. Don't be silly right? Asking for God to guide us and answer our questions and deepest longings while never placing ourselves under the instruction and authority of his word or within the fellowship and relational accountability of his people, doing that which he's already revealed to 
be the way in which we're to walk, asking God to protect and guide our children while we're unwilling to raise them up in the instruction of the Lord and model Christian behavior before them. Jesus instead makes a different leap of faith, one that one commentator notes that leads to in his radical obedience, knowing even that this obedience leads him to the cross. Jesus would ultimately demonstrate his allegiance and his obedience, not by dancing for the devil or showing off for those in his presence, but by going to the cross, stretching out his arms and dying in obedience to the heavenly father for your sins and mine. Not by going to the cross and being rescued by a legion of angels, but by remaining on it and trusting the father for what would happen on the other side of that so that we can look and see God is faithful. God does stay true to his covenant promises. On the other side of crucifixion and burial comes resurrection and new life. Charles Spurgeon said about the ongoing nature of temptation, which you see at the end of this, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him forever? No, until an opportune time. Spurgeon said, if we have peace and quiet tonight and are not tempted, let us not become self-secure. The devil will come to us again at a good opportunity. He will come back and attack us when we are alone or when we're sad or when we're lonely. He will frequently come and find an occasion against his children when we are sick, when we are ill. He comes when we've suffered some great loss and says, is this really how God treats his children? God's people seem to actually be no better off than other people, don't they? Let me give you two simple major points out of this because often this is preached and taught to us in a way that is not in line with how Luke is laying it out. The center of this for Luke is Christological. It's about who Christ is and how he operates and what he has done. It's not a little message simply about how, how you and I can look at his example and then beat temptation, though we are wise to look at Jesus' immersion in Scripture where he's pulling out and quoting things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons and being aided in victory as he does. Yet Jesus is the point of this passage, not us. Two quick major points. One, Jesus comes out victorious over everything the devil throws his way. For 40 days, Jesus is out there. He's not eating. For 40 days, he's being tempted by the devil. At least toward the end of those three days, we see three named explained temptations that could only, you realize this could only have come from the witness of Jesus himself sharing with his disciples. Man, Lord, tell us what happened after your baptism. Nobody, nobody knows where you were for a little while. Let me tell you, what a story, right? Six weeks of unpleasantness, but I won. Jesus shares the story here. And the point ultimately is that Jesus comes out victorious over everything the devil throws to him, ultimately pointing to his victory over the devil and sin and death and hell on the cross and in his resurrection. Second major point, in Jesus and through Jesus, his victory becomes our victory. His victory becomes our victory. If you think you can go up against the temptations that assail you in your own power or simply because you've memorized some verses, you are in big trouble, my friend. 
You are only able to face the temptations of this life of your own inner voice speaking to you about your inadequacies, reminding you of who you are and what you've done in your worst moments, questioning why God would love you, saying, hey, funny you think you're saved. But you go against them in and through the person of Jesus Christ, who is victorious and who gives that victory to his people. You and I should not be simply sinners anymore. We've been redeemed. We've been made saints. Are we still sinful? Absolutely. But I fear sometimes we use that too much as an excuse, not understanding the fullness of the power of the Spirit that we've been given in and through Jesus Christ. Richard Sibbs died on July 6, 1635. He was uh, a well-educated Anglican theologian and Puritan. Uh, He was 58 when he died. Uh, Later in his life, he became affectionately referred to as the heavenly doctor, the heavenly doctor because of his uh, unique ability at the time in the early 17th century to write and to preach and to teach both to the head and the heart, right? Both uh, to the mind and to the emotion of his listeners. He wrote quite a number of, of significant works that have become classics over time. He spent most of the, the latter years of his life splitting his preaching and teaching time every Sunday between Gray's Inn in London and Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. One of his classic works which we actually have available in the bookstore. It's a small book, yet powerful, is entitled The Bruised Reed. The Bruised Reed. In The Bruised Reed, Sibs writes this, weakness and watchfulness will stand. Weakness and watchfulness will stand when strength and too much confidence fails. Weakness with acknowledgement of it is the fittest seat and subject for God to perfect his strength in. For consciousness of our infirmities drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. This is the message of this passage this morning. That Jesus is the victorious one. We're victorious in our weakness, in our infirmity, in our awareness of it, through him and only when through our weakness and our infirmity we're driven to Jesus for our strength and our perfection. In one of the great modern hymns that's been written, I don't know if we've started singing it here yet or not, but if we haven't, uh, we will very, very soon. Um, It's a hymn called Before the Throne of God Above. Before the Throne of God Above. In one portion of the lyrics go like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 
This ultimately is the message of Jesus' victory over temptation in Luke chapter 4. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us as we close our time in the Word together and move into a time of um, response and reflection. One of the ways we'll respond together, if you're baptized believers, is through communion. One of the ways that you'll respond is through worship and song as the people of God have been doing for millennia. One of the ways in which you have a chance to respond in just a minute in worship and trust to God is through the act of giving. Through the act of giving. While I pray, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. When I finish praying, they'll pass their buckets. You'll have an opportunity to drop in your connection cards, drop in your giving envelopes. I pray that when you look at Jesus battling hunger, battling temptation, remaining faithful to God the Father, on your behalf that it does touch both your head and your heart driving you to joyful obedience let's pray God I ask that you would stir in the hearts of the faithful this morning God those who belong to you as they prepare consistently as an act of obedience as a tangible and visible demonstration of their trust in you, as a very visceral act of trust, God, to give back to you financially a portion of what you own fully and what you have given into their lives through the gifts and opportunities you've provided them. God, I pray that they would give with joy. Lord, give with an attitude of faithfulness and obedience. God, bless all those who are about to give. Father, bless those who've given throughout this week to the ministry of the gospel at this church. Lord, remind us that each and every week on the other end of our generosity is a changed life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.